I'm recording this episode on June 5th, 2022, which is Pentecost Sunday. I'm in the upper room, my recording studio, and we'll be covering the what of Acts chapter 2. What exactly happened on that Pentecost Sunday in Acts? And what relationship does that event have with Paul's description of tongues in 1 Corinthians 12-14? Get your rethinking hats on. This one's going to be fun. Welcome to episode 46, Acts chapter 2. What just happened? Well, this is Greg Hall, and thanks for coming back to the Rethinking Scripture podcast. I appreciate your listenership. And today, we are diving into the what of Acts chapter 2. It's been a long road to get here, and I have postponed it as long as I possibly can. But it's time to finally dive in and figure out the what of Acts chapter 2. What in the world was happening that day? And how appropriate that today, and I did not plan this, I did not have this on my calendar. I wasn't counting weeks, but a couple of days ago, as I was preparing the script for this podcast, I looked at the calendar and it dawned on me that the day I was going to record this podcast was actually Pentecost Sunday. And we in the modern church have kind of disregarded Pentecost Sunday. I mean, we do Easter really well. We do Christmas pretty good too. But if you talk to most theologians, they would agree that the church was actually born on Pentecost Sunday. That's when the New Testament church actually began to take on the form that it currently has with the infilling of the Holy Spirit. Now, I would argue that the church was actually being formed for a long time before that, throughout Jesus's ministry, in fact. I think arguments could be made for the formation of the church happening over a longer period of time. But from a theological standpoint, most people would agree that Pentecost Sunday is the beginning of the New Testament church. And I think that we sometimes shy away from that message because of the awkwardness of the content of Acts chapter 2. I think pastors oftentimes just don't want to get into the mix because of the variety of preconceived notions that people have over the content of what happens in Acts chapter 2. So regarding this episode, I've decided to tackle this a little differently than most studies. So first, what we're going to do is a quick overview of the modern-day claims for what happened in Acts 2. Then we're going to discuss, just a little bit, the relationship between Luke and Paul in a little more detail. I've mentioned this in previous episodes, but I think this is going to be the linchpin for the argument that I make for how we are to read Acts chapter 2. And after we establish that, I'm going to quickly go to 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 and just make a quick list of things that Paul has said in those chapters about what people should expect when the gift of speaking in tongues is given. Then we're going to take that list from 1 Corinthians, and we're going to try and meld the two together. We're going to try and see if there's any way that what Luke is describing in Acts 2 can be meshed together with what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. So let's just start with some modern day ideas. As I've already said, Acts chapter 2 is considered the first church service. It's the birth of the New Testament church. And whether you're in the cessationist camp or the continuationist camp, everybody today thinks that those speaking in tongues that day were speaking known human languages. 
that were previously not studied by the speakers. Cessationists and continuationists both believe that's what's going on here. The majority of people think this event represents only a miracle of speaking. In other words, God granted the gift of speaking in tongues to some people that day. And because people think that the tongue speakers that day were speaking the native languages of those in the crowd, the gift of interpretation was not needed at Pentecost. That's the majority view. And because this is the birth of the New Testament church, people think that those that spoke in tongues that day were the first Christians, and that everybody that came, everyone in the crowd, the devout Jews, the others that think they were drunk, everybody in the crowd were unbelievers in need of salvation. And it's also believed of that crowd that there was largely just one response to those who spoke in tongues. Those in the crowd who heard the speakers in their native tongues speaking the mighty deeds of God. Because most studies end in Acts chapter 2, verse 12, and they don't really deal with the comment about people being drunk and new wine in Acts 2.13. It's largely believed that there was generally just one response in the crowd. Now, I've already said that I don't necessarily agree with that. I think we have a dual response. We'll take a look at that in more detail as well. And because of this layout, the the way most people read this passage today, that the tongue speakers were speaking known languages, that those languages were known by all the people in the crowd, some people think this highlights that one of the purposes of the gift of speaking in tongues is to reach unbelievers, with whom one wouldn't normally be able to communicate with the truth of the gospel. It's fairly common to hear the comment from pulpits that God gives this gift. So missionaries in foreign lands that don't speak the tongue of the native people will be able to share the gospel with them. And although this isn't a comprehensive list at all, and I'm speaking in general terms only, not everybody's going to agree with everything I've just said, but these are the majority views. And the last one I'm going to mention is if the mockers in Acts 2.13 are mentioned, they are just quickly dismissed as those in the crowd that disagreed with what is being said. In other words, it's assumed that they understood what the people up front were speaking, that they just disagreed with them and thought they were crazy. And as I presented in my brief description in episode 40, those in the modern-day continuationist camp understand the tongues here to be known human languages, but they conclude that the tongues discussed in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 can also include a heavenly language, a language that's unknown to men. So they would say that there are different versions of this gift described in Scripture, sometimes known human languages, but other times a heavenly language that no man would normally understand. The way Paul describes tongues in 1 Corinthians 14 specifically, it does sound like he's describing something other than known human languages. Just at face value, it seems like that's the description that's being given there. But those in the cessationist camp don't like the modern practice of speaking in a heavenly language. They think the way it's being practiced in our modern day is an unbiblical human attempt to manifest or manufacture this gift. They think the heavenly languages that people speak today are just made-up gibberish, nonsense sounds created solely by the speakers. So for the cessationist, 
A key aspect of their theological argument is that the gift of tongues is always only one thing. It's the ability to speak known languages. So a cessationist goes into 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, and honestly, they have to do theological cartwheels to try and interpret that passage as describing known languages. Their attempts to parse those passages, it always seems to feel a bit forced. But that's the majority of the modern-day rub with this topic. Cessationists say it's only known languages, and God doesn't use the gift anymore. And continuationists say it can be known languages, oh, but it can be so much more than that. And that nearly everyone today can and should get in on the action. The interesting thing is that while both sides of this discussion claim their position is based in the biblical text, most of this modern-day discussion comes from our recent modern-day history and culture. The modern Pentecostal movement in the United States began around 1900, and the response to that movement over the last 120-some-odd years has created the modern-day discussion that we all know so well. And the text has become the victim in the process. We've been told what to think about these passages, about Acts 2, but when push comes to shove, and there's a lot of theological pushing and shoving that takes place out there on this topic, well, when that happens, the text gets abused. It's taken out of its original context and brought right into our modern-day scrimmage. And I think we've lost the ability to look at the text objectively on this issue. And that's the conversational cul-de-sac that believers find themselves in today. We start a trip into Tongstown, and it turns into a theological cul-de-sac, where everyone seems to be suspicious of everyone else's motives and actions, and we don't seem to have the ability to get past a simple discussion of definitions. But the conversation needs to change. We need to get back to the text and ask some different questions. So let's get started. As I stated in a previous podcast, I think one of the most overlooked pieces of information is the fact that Paul's letter of 1 Corinthians, which is the only passage of substance regarding tongues outside of Acts, was written before Luke wrote down the events we read about in Acts 2. And it's important to get this relationship situated in our head. So let's remind ourselves who the two authors are. Luke. He wrote the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts. It's a dual volume about the life of Jesus and what happened to the Jesus movement after his departure. And as we've pointed out on previous episodes, these two books are brilliantly organized. Luke put a lot of thought into the content and the structure that he included. As we've talked about, the books are organized in a similar parallel structure. Luke is a brilliant and thoughtful author. And I think sometimes when we read narrative accounts in the Bible, we think that whoever wrote it was just reporting each individual story as they happened without any forethought about the structure and content of those events. But that's not the case. Luke handpicked each story. He carefully constructed the details he included, and he, with the guidance of the Holy Spirit during the whole process— perfectly placed each story exactly how he thought it would best fit. So that's Luke. 
The other author that writes about speaking in tongues is the Apostle Paul. And if people often think Luke is just retelling a simple story, the opposite could be said about Paul. Those that study Paul's letters know that he is concerned mostly with doctrine and instruction to the early church. That's what we see in the book of 1 Corinthians. And it's certainly the content of chapters 12 through 14, where the subject is speaking in tongues, among other things. So between these two authors, Luke wrote two books, totaling nearly 38,000 words, and Paul wrote 12 books, totaling over 32,000 words. Together, they are responsible for over half of the New Testament. So we have Luke and Paul, two seemingly different authors. Luke is likely a Gentile, and if so, he's the only Gentile author in the New Testament. Paul is the self-proclaimed Jew of Jews. But what you may not realize is the relationship between the two. Luke likely professed faith in Jesus during Paul's second missionary journey. In Acts 16.6, Luke writes that they passed through the different regions, and his use of the third person they was signifying that he was not a part of the group at that point. But just a few verses later, in verse 10, Luke says, We sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. In verse 10, Luke switches to the second person plural, we and us, to include himself in the story. He's joined Paul at this point in Paul's journey. So Luke and Paul were close. They traveled together. They had time to talk. And Paul wrote the letter of 1 Corinthians after meeting Luke. Luke would have not only known what that letter said, but he would have been familiar with the situation in Corinth the abuse of tongues, and what was going on there. Luke and Paul were on the same page. And Luke knew all of this before he wrote the book of Acts. So, although the events of Acts chapter 2 happen before the church in Corinth is even formed, Luke's account of Acts chapter 2 was written after the Corinthian church was already having problems. And here's where I'm going to challenge you maybe a little bit. Because simple logic would dictate that Luke would craft his account of Acts chapter 2 and the rest of his writing to line up with the teachings of Paul on this topic. I mean, wouldn't it seem weird for these two who traveled together, who would end up writing over half of the New Testament, not to talk about how to present the gift of tongues in a coordinated fashion? Luke only mentions speaking in tongues three times, Acts 2, 10, and 19. But we know from Paul's letter that speaking in tongues was happening more than that. So why did Luke only include three accounts? Again, logic would say, with so few accounts, Luke, the careful author that he was, would have included in those accounts enough about tongues to dovetail with Paul's letter of 1 Corinthians. It would only make sense for Luke to write his accounts of tongue speaking to back up Paul's previously written letter to Corinth. And if there was anything different than what Paul had already said, Luke would have made that distinction in his writing. And it's that perspective that's missing from most of the cul-de-sac conversations we're having about speaking in tongues. Most people assume that Luke is simply reciting the facts about what happened in Acts 2 and that Paul later writes his letter to Corinth. But that's not the way it came about. 
So in the remainder of this episode, I'm going to quickly outline some of the things that Paul said about the gift of tongues in his letter to the Corinthians. And then I'll take those items back to the book of Acts. And usually when this happens, when people compare the two, they're trying to show the differences between the two. But we're going to take the opposite approach. We will be looking at the two accounts, assuming they are working together in a coordinated effort to describe what is happening in the early church. So let's dive into 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 for just a brief moment, and I'll present a quick list of some things that Paul includes regarding tongues. And let me just say, for those of you that like a real close study of Scripture, this view into these three chapters is going to be very disappointing. (laughs) It's just going to be a list, and it's not even going to be comprehensive. So, here's the list. In 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 30, the gift of kinds of tongues and interpretation of tongues are included in a list of several other spiritual gifts. Paul points out that not everyone gets all the gifts, but that they are distributed to each person as the Holy Spirit wills, and that this process all works together seamlessly like a well-coordinated body. That's actually a recap of most of chapter 12. In chapter 13, Paul says that love must be the root cause of all the spiritual gifts. He points out that the spiritual gifts will eventually pass away, but the root cause of love will remain. And at the beginning of the chapter, he mentions, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Chapter 13 is actually the one you're probably most familiar with because you've probably heard it at a wedding at some point. In chapter 14, we get into a little more detail. Paul begins by emphasizing the importance of prophecy over the gift of tongues. And I think this is an important part of Paul's instruction, that prophecy is better than tongues. And why is that? Well, Paul gives several reasons. First, those who speak in tongues speak to God. And those speaking don't understand what they're saying. In fact, no one understands what they're saying. And in contrast, those who speak prophecy are understood by everyone. And their words are edifying, exhorting, and consoling to those who hear, especially for believers. He also says that the gift of tongues by themselves are not profitable unless it is accompanied by further teaching that is understood by everyone. That's 1 Corinthians 14.6. Paul then emphasizes the importance to have understandable teaching dominate a church gathering rather than speaking in tongues where the Spirit is engaged but the mind is unfruitful, 1 Corinthians 14, 12 through 19. He says, tongues are a signal to unbelievers because when unbelievers hear tongues being spoken, they will think the speakers are behaving like a madman, 1 Corinthians 14, 22. But when prophecy is spoken, everyone benefits. Unbelievers are convicted and believers are edified, 1 Corinthians 14, 6 and 24 through 25. When believers assemble and the Holy Spirit is in charge, it will be an organized and orderly gathering. If tongues are given, then the gift of interpretation will also be given. And those two always work together in a gathering. And if both are not present, then the tongue speaker should keep quiet. 
And I would have to say, presumably, because it's not of the Spirit, because those two gifts always go together, 1 Corinthians 14, 26, and 27. Then, those who have a word of prophecy will speak in an orderly fashion, one at a time, so all the believers and unbelievers may be addressed. Paul then has a small section about women being silent in church gatherings uh, that has been largely misunderstood, but I won't comment on that today since it doesn't speak directly to our purposes regarding Acts 2. So sorry to disappoint. (laughs) And that's the end of my list, but that's not everything in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, but it's an adequate summary for our purposes today. So, Let's make our way back to Acts chapter 2 now and see if we can dovetail what Paul and Luke both have to say about speaking in tongues. Okay, so we've done all the prep work. So we're going to jump into the text of Acts chapter 2 and read it from a completely different perspective. Let's read the Pentecost account with the assumption that Luke is trying to complement and illustrate everything that Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. Luke would have known that his book, the book of Acts, would eventually end up in Corinth, and the church that Paul instructed would be reading about Pentecost. Let's assume that Luke wrote his account in such a way as to give clear demonstration, a boots-on-the-ground illustration, if you will, of the instruction that Paul had already given them. And for just the sake of this discussion, let's also assume that the groundwork that I laid out in episode 44, that it was only the 12 who ended up speaking in tongues that day, and that they were at the temple instead of, let's say, an upper room. And one doesn't have to hold to those views for the following exercise, but just for conversation's sake, I'll assume that's who spoke and that's where they were. So the first question I want to ask is, is Acts 2 a church service? Because Paul's instruction specifically is for church gatherings. And Paul's instructions assume that a church service is happening, that believers are gathered together. So the question is, In Acts 2, did Luke describe a church service? Well, it's not exactly how we would probably choose to describe one in our modern-day context. But as I said earlier, Pentecost is almost universally described as the birth of the New Testament church. So when the tongues of fire distributed themselves on the 12 apostles that day, the first church service officially began. Luke is illustrating how tongues work when believers come together. It's a church service. The Greek word that's often translated into the English as church simply describes a gathering, the people that are called out and called together. What Luke is describing is how tongues work when believers come together. So one of the other stipulations that Paul has in 1 Corinthians is that when this happens, when the gift of tongues is given, it's going to be an orderly event. That's how the Holy Spirit works. So if it's anything other than orderly, it's probably not the Holy Spirit working. And Paul says that the Holy Spirit works this way in an organized fashion so everyone can be edified. So although your perception of Acts chapter 2 may be a bit chaotic, I think we can and should assume that the events of that day, although it was a large crowd, were very orderly, that there was a method to the presentation of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And now maybe the most important question 
of the day. When we go into Acts chapter 2, was the gift of interpretation given by the Holy Spirit. Paul says that when someone speaks in a tongue, there must be someone there who has been given the gift of interpretation. Otherwise, the tongue speakers should be silent. That's in chapter 14, verse 6 of 1 Corinthians. So with this perspective that we're bringing to Acts 2, the assumption should be because the 12 spoke that at least someone there was interpreting. And here's where we run into some problems, because both camps in our modern-day discussion have already decided that the gift that is given is the gift of speaking known languages, and that the men who are speaking in tongues are speaking the known languages of everyone in the audience. And because the people in the audience already know the languages that are being spoken, the gift of interpretation was not given on that day. That's the modern-day assumption for Acts chapter 2. But if we assume that Luke and Paul are trying to dovetail their two accounts of this gift, that would completely contradict what Paul said in 1 Corinthians. Paul says when a tongue is spoken, nobody understands. And that's why God gives the gift of interpretation, so that people can understand what is being said. And if the gift of interpretation is not being given, that the tongue speakers should shut up. So is it possible at all on this point that the two passages can be harmonized at all? Well, if that's true, something different has to be happening on the day of Pentecost than most people assume in our modern day context. What we do know is this. This is the way the text says it in Acts chapter 2 that there appeared to everyone there tongues as of fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And I'm saying that's the 12. And they were all filled, all the 12 were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak with other tongues. And the Greek word there can also be translated as languages. And that's where we get into this modern day idea that they were known languages. But they were speaking as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Okay, so that's what's happening with the 12. Then it switches to the crowd. And I think it's important how part of the crowd is described. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, and we're not quite sure if that's the sound of the the wind that they heard earlier or the sound of people speaking in tongues, there's some debate on that. But when this sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in their own language. I think what Luke is telling us is that that not the whole crowd, but each one of the devout Jewish men that gathered there that day heard what was being said in their native tongue. Again, they were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. Now, notice what it doesn't say there. And this might be a minor point, but it's probably something you haven't considered before. It does not say that each one of them heard one of the disciples speaking in his own language. That's how it's presented in our modern day discussion, that these disciples, these 12 disciples are up there, and the list of different languages that are possibly represented in the list of places that each disciple was speaking a different language, a known language from those places. And if that's the case, each one of them would have just been hearing one of them speak in his own language. But when Luke describes it, he says, because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. In other words, all the devout men in the crowd that day heard the 12 speaking in his own language. 
And then again in verse 8, they say, how is it that we hear each of them in our own language? Now notice also the way this is stated in both times from the crowd. It's not that how is it that they are speaking our own language? That would be maybe a normal way of saying it. How is it that these guys are speaking our native dialects? How is that even possible? But that's not what they say. They don't say that the men up front are speaking our native tongues. Both times when it's described, first in verse 6, and then again here in verse 8, how is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? And then verse 12 says, And they all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, What does this mean? And when it says all there, it's going back to the description given in verse 5. It's not the whole crowd that continued in amazement and great perplexity and that were saying to one another, What does this mean? It's just the Jews who were devout men from every nation under heaven. The devout men in the crowd are having a conversation amongst themselves. And that, in verse 12, is normally where people stop talking about Acts chapter 2 and the gift of tongues. But that's not the end of the story, because in verse 13, it says, But others were mocking. Now, others. There's two words in the Greek language from which an author can choose to describe what kind of others he's talking about. One of the words for others describes others of the same sort. So if I'm in a conversation and I'm talking about one group, and then I say, but others did this, I could use the Greek word that says, these others that I'm about to talk about, they are similar to the first group. The other Greek word that could be used describes exactly the opposite that these others are others of a different sort. They are others of a different type. That's the word that Luke chooses to use in verse 13 when he describes the mockers in the crowd. He says, but others. And by using that particular Greek word, he's saying others of a different sort. Different from what, you might ask? Well, I would propose that the group in 13 is different than the devout Jews that had gathered there together, described in verses 5 through 12. Others of a different sort. Well, then that just begs the question, how are they different? What other type are they? Well, if the first group were devout, who are the others? I would have to say they're not devout. They're not God followers. They're not believers in the one true God. And the response from that crowd is mockery. And that makes sense. That's what you would expect from an unbelieving group in the crowd that was experiencing something crazy that the Holy Spirit was coordinating that day. Others were mocking and saying they are full of sweet wine. They're drunk. I'm going to try and tie a bunch of things together and coordinate it with 1 Corinthians right now. So what is the what of Acts chapter 2? Because this group of others of a different type in verse 13 concluded that the people were drunk, it says to me that they didn't understand what the people were saying. Even though these mockers would have been from all the same places that the devout Jews were from as well. It's not like there was a line drawn down the middle of this crowd with all the devout people on one side and all the others on the other side. It'd be just like our church services today, where you've got believers in the service and unbelievers sitting right next to them, and they're friends. They come from the same places. Most of them are probably Jewish. 
but the way Luke is describing them, they don't share the same faith. And just to revisit 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, when Paul talks about a church service, what he's talking about is the difference between having believers and unbelievers in the same service. And he says, when the church assembles together and tongues are being spoken and ungifted men or he describes that further as unbelievers enter. Will the unbelievers not say that you are mad, that you're crazy? And I think the description of being drunk could be added in there as well. I think Luke is giving us a boots on the ground description of what it's like when a church service happens, when believers and unbelievers are in the crowd and tongues are being spoken. Some of those in the crowd are going to hear and understand him and others are going to think you're mad. That's exactly what happens in Acts chapter 2. The two dovetail together nicely. And I know what you're saying because you haven't made the leap yet. If they're speaking known languages, how is that even possible? That only the unbelievers in the crowd didn't understand those known languages. It's because they weren't speaking known languages. The text never says they were. All the text says is that The devout men in the crowd were the only ones that understood the tongue speaking and they heard them in their own language. And we, both cessationists and continuationists in our modern day conversation, have made the leap that that means that what was being spoken were known languages. But that's not what the text says. So what could it be? What was happening? What happened that day at Pentecost? At the beginning of chapter 13 in 1 Corinthians, Paul makes this statement. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I've become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And every commentary that I've ever read separates those two examples, the tongues of men and of angels, saying that there are tongues that men use, known languages, and then there are tongues that angels use angelic languages. And the continuationists say that, see, Paul is saying that men can use the tongues of angels. And the cessationists say that he's just giving a hyperbolic example, that he doesn't really mean that people actually speak a heavenly language. But I haven't found anybody that's combining the two. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, in other words, one language that men and angels share, and you say, well, that doesn't exist— And I say, it exists, we just don't know that it exists because it's been taken away. And what do I mean by that? If you go back in the book of Genesis to chapter 11, you'll read the story of the Tower of Babel, where all humanity shared one language. And because of the events of that story, God took that language away and gave humanity many other languages. But if the language that God took away was one that humanity shared up until that point in the biblical story, we are to also understand it's also a language that was available to the heavenly realm. The story of the garden, where the serpent spoke to Adam and Eve, what language would that have been in? It would have been in the one language that all humanity shared. When God was in the garden and spoke with Adam and Eve and gave instructions, what language would he have been using? Would it have been a different language? Or would he have spoken to Adam and Eve in the language that all humanity shared? That's the only thing that makes sense. That language, the Alpha language, the first language that God took away at the Tower of Babel, 
was a language of men and of angels. It was one language. And my proposal is this. Simply, the gift of tongues is not the gift of known languages. It never was. The gift of tongues is not nonsensical gibberish. People trying to make up what they think the gift of tongues should be. The gift of tongues is one thing. It's God giving humans the ability to speak with the tongues of men and of angels. It's a language that humanity shared with the heavenly realm for a period of time and that was taken away because of rebellion. And that in Acts chapter 2, that language for just a short period of time was inserted into the ongoing narrative of what God is doing in his redemptive process. And that's why people were perplexed that day. That's why the others in the crowd were mocking, because what was coming out of the disciples' mouths didn't make sense to them. It wasn't a known language to man that was spoken that day. But how is it that the devout men understood what the apostles were saying if it wasn't a known language? They were given the gift of interpretation. And what is the gift of interpretation? It's not a general feeling that you have in your soul where you start speaking and then God gives you the rest of it as you go. It's not a general anything. I've argued this in previous episodes. The gift of interpretation is specific. It's always specific in the Bible when God speaks and he gives people the ability to interpret what has been spoken. It's always completely understood. How is somebody in our fallen world with many languages ever going to get a group of people to understand specifics? The best comprehension that we have is when we hear something in our native tongue. The gift of interpretation is the spirit-given ability to hear an unknown tongue as if you are hearing it in your native language so that it can be understood. Paul says, if tongues are given, the gift of interpretation will also be given. Those two always work together in a gathering. And if both are not present, the tongue speaker should keep quiet. That's what I think is happening in Acts chapter 2. And as we go further into the context, as we get to Acts chapter 10, and it's Cornelius doing the speaking in tongues in his household, Peter makes a point of saying that the exact same thing was happening there that was happening here. And we'll take a look at it as we get to it in our study of the book of Acts. And we'll take a look at Acts 8 and Acts 19 to see if those play in. And we'll take a look at Acts 9. But the last detail I want to emphasize is the fact that when Paul talked about the gift of tongues versus prophecy, he landed heavily on prophecy. And if Luke was actually trying to illustrate the gift of tongues, as Paul described it, you would expect there to be somebody standing up after the tongues event on the day of Pentecost, giving a word of prophecy in an orderly fashion at one time. So all the people there, the believers and unbelievers may be addressed. And that's exactly what Luke records in Acts chapter two, starting in verse 14, when Peter stands up and notice what Peter says. He begins by addressing the mockers in the crowd, the unbelievers in the crowd that thought that everybody was crazy because they did not understand what had just happened. He said, men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words for these men are not drunk as you suppose. He first addresses the mockers, the unbelievers in the crowd, 
And then he gives a word of prophecy that benefits both groups in the crowd. Those in the crowd that believe in God already, that are already saved, hear about Jesus and come to faith in him. They transfer their existing faith to Jesus that day. Those are not new converts, by the way. They were already believers in God. But there may have been some in the crowd that were in the group of mockers. And when they heard Peter's sermon, they had the opportunity to respond. And perhaps some of them ended up in the group of 3,000 that day as well. But the majority of the people that responded that day, because of the way that Luke gave the presentation, describes this group of devout men that had gathered together for an in-gathering feast day in Jerusalem, the day of Pentecost, a day that commemorated the giving of the Old Testament law at Mount Sinai. And it just so happened that this was the day that the Holy Spirit came and landed on people in a dramatic way and began writing the law on their hearts. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, that was the day. Well, that's all I got for today. And let's be honest, isn't that more than enough for one day? I realize that presentation was probably a little different than what you've normally heard about Acts chapter 2. I just invite you to camp on that perspective a little bit. Let it sink in. Go back to the text. Read the text again with a different set of eyes. Begin to ask the questions that I've been asking for the last several years and see if it's even possible that we could be misreading the what of Acts chapter 2. Well, thanks for listening. Thanks for making it all the way to the end of this long episode. In the next episode, we'll move further on in the book of Acts and start to find out what happened there in Jerusalem before Stephen gets murdered and everybody scatters. Oh, and hey, if you have time between now and then, please take a moment and rate or maybe review this podcast. That's one of the ways we can draw other people in to our Rethinking crowd. Oh, and by the way, I would really appreciate it if you would recommend to one of your friends the Rethinking Scripture podcast. Mm-hmm.